This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, November 16th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. After bombings take dozens of lives in Paris, it's worth examining the ways U.S. authorities attempt to reduce the risk of terrorist activity here at home and how effective those programs have been. John Mueller and Mark Stewart are co-authors of the new book, Chasing Ghosts, The Policing of Terrorism. We spoke today. ISIS has only really existed as a meaningful thing for the last year or so, a year and a half. Um, the, uh, the, the attacks seem to have been inspired by ISIS or called for by ISIS, but they don't seem to have been, unlike 9-11, for example, orchestrated by the terrorist organization abroad. The uh, Paris attack is really, you know, obviously horribly destructive, but the other attacks that have been inspired, at least seem to have been inspired by ISIS, have been uh, generally uh, really quite pathetic. All right. So what is it, what does it matter that uh, these were inspired by rather than directly orchestrated by uh, this group? It just means that uh, these are not ISIS attacks in the direct sense, that it's not like, like al-Qaeda organizing things abroad and sending people abroad to do things. There are people um, – th- there's been plenty of uh, inspirational stuff going around uh, and the result, uh, at least up until Paris, has been pretty limited. Yeah, and it also makes the attacks much more random in nature. Uh, so you may not be part of an organized, um, an, an organized campaign in that sense and that might well be j- just a one-off. All right. So but I mean given the destruction, the public policy reaction seems to be more concentrating toward attacking in these various other – these various countries in which uh, this group operates. Yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense if it's basically inspirational. Uh, uh, getting rid of ISIS is a really good idea. It's obviously an incredibly vicious, horrible group and the people living under their reign is, is – they're in bad shape obviously and, and, and persecuted and prosecuted and uh, uh, dehumanized. Um, but uh, inspiration can come from anywhere so that even if ISIS doesn't exist, it can still be an inspiration. Al-Qaeda's – I mean uh, Osama bin Laden's been dead for four years now but he still may inspire his image and his reputation may still inspire some people. Yeah, and, and the attacks in Paris might well be very counterproductive to ISIS because it's really going to galvanize the rest of the world to take pretty, pretty stiff action against them. And that was, that was the same with al-Qaeda in 9-11, obviously. If the idea was to drive the United States out of the Middle East, it was wildly counterproductive uh, and uh, drove uh, al-Qaeda, of course, out of Afghanistan. Um, and and al-Qaeda has done very little, uh, al-Qaeda central, very little since, since uh, 2001. And the, the, uh, as Mark says, the, uh, the counterproductive aspect of this is, is terrific. Namely, the French are now uh, ready to do any kind of action. But the main, the main problem would be mostly local policing, you know, finding out uh, local groups and trying to uh, infiltrate um, uh, agents and so forth. All right. So in your book, Chasing Ghosts, you talk about various cases in the past where the United States has dealt with people who either executed or tried to execute various attacks. Uh, one specific example is Khalid Sheikh Mohammed who – I think padded his resume a bit. Yes. Yeah, he's got a very he, – he, uh, basically he's taking credit for or blame for just about everything. And you look at it as overall record. What happened on 9-11 is impressive to say the least uh, in the most horrible possible way. But the rest of his record is, is mainly flailing around, planning things that never get put together or orchestrating things that when they do get put together basically fail. 
So he's, the idea is a mastermind. Um, he may have gotten really lucky once, uh, but it's not clear that uh, the mastermind label fits well. Yes, and one, one of the issues we, that, we, that we discussed in the book is really, given the nature of the threat, is it really worth the United States spending something like $115 billion per year on domestic counterterrorism? And most of that money goes, goes towards policing. Right, so that's, that's the, the, the essence of the book is sort of look at what the threat seems to be within the United States. It seems to be pretty limited after 9-11, and, uh, but a huge amount of money is being spent on it. And the logical thing is to try to figure out whether the money being spent has reduced the risk enough to justify its cost. And over and over again, not in all cases, but over and over again, we find uh, that it simply hasn't. And there's also been something of an institutionalized paranoia. After 9-11, the feeling was that there could be many of these attacks again and again. The FBI was finding uh, hundreds of potential terrorists, they thought, cling to al-Qaeda. And as early as 2002, uh, intelligence was telling major reporters that uh, there were between two and 4,000 al-Qaeda operatives in the United States. Uh, the correct number turned out to be very close to zero. So that uh, should be kept in mind. We tend to overestimate the, uh, or over-exaggerate, uh, massively extrapolate from terrible episodes. Yes, and in the direct aftermath of 9-11, it made a, made a fair bit of sense to, to increase spending, to reassure the, the American public and, and many other um, places overseas as well that, that, that the threat might actually be much worse than what we think it is. But after 14 years of not much really happening in the United States, perhaps it's time to recalibrate some of those expenditures. All right. Well, no one in the intelligence and policing community within the United States wants to hear that. So what is uh, a typical reaction by uh, intelligence and uh, police agencies to the idea that perhaps we do need to evaluate programs and uh, determine whether or not they've been useful? Yeah, I think it's really quite irresponsible not to reevaluate them. Uh, the idea, the panic spending in the wake of 9/11, was hardly surprising or anything. Uh, we do that in our private lives. We do that in our business lives. But after a while, you uh, go back and recalibrate and really look at it. And uh, some of the money you spent in panic may actually be doing some good, but a lot of it is almost certainly, it stands to common sense, uh, not done much good. And you'd expect over a period of time that that kind of re-evaluation would take place. And we found very little of that actually happening. In fact, our original idea on this was to look at the studies that have been made about uh, counterterrorism within the United States and re-evaluate them from a standpoint of cost-benefit analysis and see you know, which were good and which were bad. And we tended to find that there weren't any at all. That pass a basic cost-benefit test? That there weren't any analyses that even tried to evaluate them from a sensible uh, cost-benefit analysis standpoint. Okay. Well, how are uh, internal ombudsmen and others trying to evaluate the effectiveness of of anti-terrorism programs? Uh, well, they're they're not getting very far at the moment. Um, even though the Office of Management and Budget mandates that any government legislation be subject to a cost-benefit analysis, some of the agencies within DHS they will just say, "Well, this is the cost of the program." Uh, but the benefit is actually too difficult to quantify. But we, you know, but they believe that there's a benefit, and therefore that's sufficient. And for our purposes, that is really just not good enough. Um, if you're going, particularly when agencies talking about a risk-based approach, then you need to quantify what the risk actually is, how much you're going to reduce that risk by some new measure or some existing measure, and how much is that going to cost, and then figure out 
the balance between the benefit versus versus the cost. Yeah, it's an extremely standard uh, approach. Um, the United States has signed on to it decades ago, and it's, uh, other Western countries' this basic approach for dealing with it. Uh, if you have a safety measure, for example, putting seat belts in a car, you have to explain how many lives it's going to save, how much it's going to cost, how much it reduces the risk, and so forth. Uh, and uh, you should do that with every hazard. In fact, you're supposedly required to do so by uh, government agencies. And that simply, as far as we can see, has not been done for terrorism. I remember there was a, a debate. It was not too long ago, a few years ago, and some of my friends on Capitol Hill uh, talked to me about it, which was the idea of whether or not – and I believe I, – I believe this was Viper teams, uh, people who would be on various transport uh, facilities at stations and um, the question was how effective are these going to be at preventing terrorism? There was absolutely no demonstrated benefit but the question that certain members of Congress were raising is what happens if we get rid of it? And that seems to be uh, a precautionary principle at work that basically raises the question, well, yeah, but if we get rid of it and something happens, I will be blamed for it. Yeah, but that's uh, that's irresponsible. Essentially, if you're taking a job like that, um, you should be prepared to have to make the career-threatening decisions even as a fireman who, who signs up for the fire department knows that, uh, to, knows that eventually he might have to go into a burning building. It's not sufficient to say no. I didn't sign up for that. I signed up to get, you know, help my keep my job and get catch my catch up on my sleep. So consequently, making those kinds of decisions is part of the job. If you don't, if you're not willing to make those kinds of decisions, which might be career threatening, uh, you shouldn't take the job in the first place. Yeah, it also means that there's obviously many layers of security that could be assessed, and if some of them turn out to be not particularly cost effective. That actually means that we can divert resources to areas that we do know is cost-effective. So actually looking at each measure in turn in a very rigorous scientific approach can actually improve security. So we're not, we're not actually advocating a reduction. This actually can be used much more effectively. Yeah, we're talking about public safety here too, the most important thing that government does. And to do it irresponsibly and not do what Mark says, namely put the money where you get the most – since you don't have infinite budgets, you want to put the money where you get the most safety improvement. And to not do that is just uh, – is, is, is very irresponsible, I think. You talked about reassuring the public after 9-11, but uh, these programs seem to provide reassurance uh, without necessarily providing any security benefits. Yeah, and they also haven't been effective at uh, raising – increasing public opinion uh, or reassuring the public. Uh, there's a chapter in the book dealing with public opinion since 9-11 in the United States and there's very little change. And if anything, people feel less safe than they did before 9-11. This is before the rise of ISIS even or, and, 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 and the Paris thing. Yeah, and correct. I mean to reassure the public is very important and so is – and security theater has its place. But it doesn't say that you need 4,000 air marshals to, to reassure the public. Maybe 2,000 air marshals would be perfectly sufficient to reassure the public. So it, so it really is what level of expenditure will give you the greatest benefit. With respect to specific – uh, U.S. agencies, either policing or intel gathering or that, or that sort of thing, which agencies are – do we have an idea are providing the most security theater with the least amount of security benefit? Uh, that would probably be the TSA in terms of aviation security. Uh, the U.S. Air Marshal uh, program costs more than a billion dollars per year. They run only maybe 5 percent of flights and they reduce the risk by about 0.1 percent. So it's, al it's almost minuscule. Uh, 
And so that's a large amount of money that has been spent probably 15% of the total TSA budget on a measure that reduces the risk by 0.1%. So that would clearly be a measure which we, we feel is completely cost, cost, cost ineffective and could be radically overhauled. Um, but if you want to look on, on, on the plus side, when we looked at, at the FBI, uh, that was probably seen as the most cost-effective um, policing intel measures that, that we looked at, particularly when their cost of the FBI is, on counterterrorism is about $3 billion per year. So, so I would argue that's a relatively modest investment in an agency that gets you a pretty good return. Though even in that case, we can argue that the, the budget is too high, but it certainly shouldn't go to zero by any means. Uh, other areas like the National Security Agency, particularly the, uh, the t- telephone um, data program, um, metadata program, just seem to have – it's very hard to do cost-benefit analysis because it's hard to find that it has any benefit whatever. Uh, and we do, do know it has a cost. Um, so – and the fact that that's still going and is even picking up steam in, in, in uh, overseas, other people thinking about doing it is, is bizarre. A lot of these programs seem to be great forensic tools but not great at reducing risk of some sort of uh, event. Yeah, there was also the question of how many events would have been there without this and it's not clear that there would have been much of anything. We look extensively at people who have planned to do damage in the United States, look at every single case in fact that have come to light um, and uh, the more you look at these, the more pathetic they, they seem. Uh, there are people who desperately want to do something, but the idea that they could get past their patent inadequacies to actually carry something off, uh, it seems to be very low. So even when they do catch somebody, it's not clear that public safety has benefited that much. And, and in many cases, they make use of people who are effectively inept to turn them into something that seems like a considerably bigger risk than they were. Yeah, frequently. They will infiltrate um, uh, informants into a plot and the informant will bring the plot into fruition in many respects. When I see the death toll mm-hmm. from Paris and I – you know, it, it's, it's obviously terrible. It's, a, it's, a, it's an atrocity. But I – in my mind, I consider, well, you know, how many people die from various other causes – uh, over the course of a year or a weekend in somewhere like France or the United States. So what is the risk of being killed by a terrorist based on recent history? Yeah, well, the, well this raises a very important issue in terms of acceptable risk. I mean, no one likes to accept a death and no one likes to accept a risk. But as a society, we, we, we tolerate some hazards over others. Uh, over, over the last 30, 40 years, the risk of being killed by terrorists in the United States is about one in four million. Uh, in the UK, it's about one in two or three million. In Australia, it's about one in seven million. Even in France, it's about one in seven million, in, including the recent the recent tragic events in Paris. And, and the American data include 9-11, even including 9-11 in the count. Yeah. So generally speaking, if a risk is less than about one in a million per year, which is about the likelihood of being struck and killed by lightning, then that's seen as a, as a risk that a government and society can, gener- can generally accept. If the risk is much higher, higher than that, then it's worth investing money and resources to try and actually reduce that risk. But we don't really see that for, for the risk of terrorism. Yeah, we can't even find out to find them using the word acceptable risk. I mean, clearly, if your chance of being killed by a terrorist is one in four million per year, including 9-11 on the count, if you take it since 9-11, it's one in 110 million in the United States. 
your chance of being killed by a terrorist. The question should come up, is that acceptable? Is that, or would you rather spend money on reducing other risks, which are much higher? And that's the way the basic, it doesn't, doesn't end the discussion, uh, but it certainly poses the, the appropriate questions. John Mueller and Mark Stewart are co-authors of Chasing Ghosts, The Policing of Terrorism. You can read more about the risks of terrorism and fighting against it at our website, cato.org.